welcome to Doing Design Podcast on This Is Hate CD, hosted by all the world's best live design and innovation trainers from thisisdoing.com. The Doing Design Podcast focuses on all the behind-the-scenes things related to actually doing innovation and design, such as design research, facilitation, prototyping, visualization, and it's a great sounding board for industries like service design, user experience, content design, product management, and probably a few other ones there as well. In this episode, you'll hear from myself and Craig van Dyke, one of the best design researchers that I know of, and we speak about structuring design research projects for success. It's a good one. Let's jump straight in. Craig, how are things? Great to speak with you. Yeah, likewise. I'm good. Yeah. I'm, you're uh, good. You're, you're back in, you're back in London town. Yes. After seven months in Amsterdam. Yeah. Seven months in Amsterdam. And you did the quarantine as well. Past that. Yeah. Two weeks isolation and now free to roam. Yeah. Very good. So God knows the next time when I'll be back in London, but I'm, I'm sure it's good to be back there. It's a great city. Craig, today we're going to be chatting more around uh, design research because I know on This Is Doing, you've got a, a number of great courses that you're running. One of them is Deep Dive into Design Research. But today we were chatting beforehand and we think it could be an interesting topic to talk about structuring a design research project for success. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Typically, what are the problems that you're seeing from people or practitioners and how they're structuring their projects not for success? Yeah, that's a good topic. I'd like to speak about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But typically, what are you seeing? Like, you know, in the industry, what are, what are the common pitfalls that you're seeing um, practitioners do? Well, one, the big one is that people tend to focus a lot on fieldwork. Everybody gets excited about doing interviews mm. or shadowing people or making films. But often, the next steps are not really thought through. So then you end up with a big mm. pile of material if it's not being thought through half of it is not used because people are overwhelmed with data don't have a process to bring things together that's a big pitfall yeah it's interesting i've been part of many projects over the years and some of them have had really really big extended periods of design research and capturing huge data sets and they don't know what to do with the data at the very end of it they they just kind of surmise generally why do you think it is that practitioners get so excited about going out and doing research it's the same thing with creating people love the diverging people mm-hmm. love brainstorming people love doing interesting things and less anticipate that the next step is to converge and that yeah. is also very the satisfying i find mm. but it's also frustrating if you haven't prepared for it well and that sort of keeps <laughs> keeps that going. If you yeah. don't prepare it, the experience is less optimal, and then you're not going to like it. So next time you're not going to prepare for it. Whereas if you have prepared, it can be a moment of flow as well, where things mm. like all these jigsaw puzzle pieces they they fit together, and you see the picture. So it can be very satisfying. But then you need to prepare. It's not an afterthought. Yeah. Do you think it's an estimation? problem do you think people are are miss or underestimating the time it takes to sense make like if they spend three days out in the field you know typically uh, i double that in terms in the back end of, of sense making so three days and then i do six days sense making which is quite a lot yeah. even it's a little bit the, the other way around i think if you don't prepare 
he's going to end up doing spending a lot of time trying to get through the mess. Mm. <laughs> if you yeah. do prepare, you can do it very efficiently. Because yeah. then if you prepare your fieldwork materials, like your script and the mm. sheets you're using, if you thought them through to not just the use in the field, but also for your documentation purposes and also for bringing it together in the analysis, you can do it very mm. efficiently. So actually you win time there. I yeah. see the sun is coming through, so let me... Sorry. Yeah, the sun, it's sun is shining in Dublin as well today, so it's it's kind of like it's it's a welcome break in the clouds for us over here. And Arna, it's been rain for the last couple of days. Typically, whenever I've done design research projects, specifically design research projects, not just as part of bigger things, I always kind of have an understanding of, of the artifacts and the things that I'm going to be trying to capture in those things. So, I'd like scripts and you know how they're going to be translated and what I'm going to do with them afterwards. Are you saying that like there's lots of practitioners out there that just generally go out with a notepad and a dictaphone and a script and just... No, no I think they will make like uh, templates for journey maps, for instance. And mm. they have all these sheets and do lots of mapping because that's a, a big practice, of course, in our field. But if you don't think it through to then how do I process it in terms of documentation and basically digitize it and then from mm. all the individual interactions I had with people, how do I do that in a structured way so that I can aggregate it and see the patterns? Mm. Because that's what you're doing in your analysis, right? If you do your yeah. fieldwork in a structured way, you do your documentation in a structured way, then your cross-comparison should be a breeze. If you don't, yeah. if you're just doing fantastic, exciting things everywhere, <laughs> and you're documenting it in different ways it's really difficult to bring it together it's free flowing so what walk me through with it what a typical Craig van dyke structure might be then <laughs> well one thing is to not only think about the moment you're doing your interactions with your participants but to really think then what i'm coming out of that interview i'm coming out of that day of observations are coming out of that co-creation workshop and prepare, let's say, your templates in a way that you can add your notes to it because uh, you will have loads of annotations and thoughts because it's qualitative research, right? So mm. some things are being said by the participant, but also some things aren't being said and you observe it or you have an interpretation of what happened and you want to take those notes. So you need to leave space in your templates to do that. And that's a stage of what we typically call documentation. That's not even analysis. It's just following on from the fieldwork, individual fieldwork. Mm. And then to think through, okay, if I have all these journey maps, for instance, how will I almost stack them up and look across and to see where are recurring themes, issues that people encounter or unfulfilled dreams or big frustrations that people have. And then you see patterns. Mm. You see that oh my God, everybody is hitting this wall. Or, whoa, some people are hitting this wall and others aren't. Why? Are these people different? Is there some sort of segmentation I need to do? Yeah. So you zoom a bit further out then? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you can do that if you can look through all the details. So there's a good structure in how you've done your documentation. Mm. You can label things. On This Is Hate Today, we've got a fantastic research person jay asbrook who wrote a great book called ethnographic thinking mm -hmm. and jay has a wonderful chapter in it about when he went to japan and he was 
exploring for a US based company um insights and I, I can't remember the actual the story's specifics, but he um encountered very little in the traditional sense of design research when he was going into stores looking for patterns and and sort mm-hmm. of sales within the store environment but it wasn't until he was walking down the street that he saw this unusual sign it was a black shoe just hanging there there was no light on it or any of this kind of stuff and he saw this really funky person going into the store or the building even and he followed them in and he sat down and he just observed and he noticed that there was this this very well presented lady come Mm. out and said to the person like and presented a pair of shoes to him and he said he couldn't understand what was going on here. And the person opened up the box and was like nodding ahead in approval. And they, they took the shoes and they, they left with with a little pamphlet as well. So he went up to the lady and says, well, what is this building? And he said, this is a shoe hotel. And it's a place for people to put their shoes in because a lot of people in, in Tokyo yeah. don't have a lot of closet space. So um, we we look after the shoes and they wear them and they bring them back and then we repair them and we polish them and clean them, and then we also suggest all these other kind of styles and fashions that might be mm-hmm. might be applicable or an influencer as well. And Jay has it's a really good story that I've used many times to reflect on being able to go off piste within design research and and allowing for things just to flow and allow allowing for things to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, what are your thoughts in terms of? And is this just something that you may or may not have seen, that design researchers tend to be quite rigid in, in terms of their um, approach and unwilling to, mm-hmm. to go off least? Is this, is this a thing that you've seen? Well, I'm biased, of course, because I mostly see my team and the partners I work with who don't display that uh, behavior, so I don't know. But I would say that that yeah. comes back to that fine balance we talked about before between structure and openness, because mm. yes, you need to look, yes, you're briefed on a topic, but you you need to be open enough looking at it holistically to find opportunities that might be lingering at the periphery. But at the same time, you should not be naive, of course, and be like, oh, I'm not going to have a a focus i'll just be open for everything because then you'll you'll be so superficially looking at everything you'll never find it so you need some rigor to investigate yeah. things to deep dive so probably your your story um, from jay's experience is because he's a very experienced researcher mm. he's able to sort of drift on the periphery and then find these nuggets yeah and it's not because he's completely inexperienced and just doing following his nose. And yeah. that's really something that comes back in all the stages of design research, that you need that fine balance between structure and openness. So you need mm. to prepare in order to be able to improvise. And that's also with your interaction with your participants. Mm. You prepare well, that means you have a foundation, but the moment you meet them, you can sort of be open and, and almost be like, Everything is possible. Just talk to me. But you know that you know what your focus is. You know where the magnets are. And that's the same in the analysis. You know what you're Mm -hmm. looking for. But because if it's an innovation project, you are not looking to refine things that are already there. You're looking for opportunities. So you need to be open to find unknown Mm -hmm. unknowns. But they're not coming out of sheer naivety way of working yeah you have a rigorous process to do that yeah 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 Yeah, absolutely so identifying like say the script creation is one that 
whenever I've yeah. you know helped teams, it's this whole kind of identifying what should we focus on. Yeah. They know they're going to do research. They've typically working in projects, so we've got a block of time set aside to do some research. What approaches and what things do you think people could do better on on selecting the themes that they research on? Yeah, maybe it's a bit uh, boring response, but it's that same balance between yeah. structure yeah. and openness. So there's questions in your script of things you need to know, mm. and there's questions in your script that might be nice to know. So you mm. always build your script for focus. The things it's almost like the known unknowns. So in your briefing and your conversation with the client, there's things where they say, "We know that we don't know." So please go and investigate this. But you know that if you also explore a little bit around it, you'll find things that are in the bucket of unknown unknowns. And in the end, mm. for the project, those might be even more valuable, but you don't know. Mm. So you need yeah. to cast your net wide enough to, mm. to catch those. But yeah. you shouldn't be all about unknown unknowns because you still need to deliver to what at the start of the project was the hypothesis that you're trying to investigate. Uh, but mm-hmm. that hypothesis is limited on what you know that you don't know. So we built the yeah. script to be fishing in both of those pools. Mm. And then it means in your script you have, let's say, blocks that are dedicated to certain topics. And you always try to fo- put in some questions. We need to know this. And maybe this mm. will be nice to know as well. That's casting that net yeah. a little bit wider. One of the most common things after the script has been created, they said, okay, well, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, getting a screener together and getting either a recruiter mm-hmm. or trying to find participants to, to partake in the study. And then the next question, it almost rigorously and religiously appears in front of my eyes. How many people do we need? Mm. And how many people is enough? And typically I always go 25% over the number because you'll get a fall away. Potentially you get a couple people dropping out in the sessions. Mm-hmm. Typically, how many people do you, what would you consider to be a fair amount for uh, an accurate response or an accurate story? Well, you can talk about this for days, but actually... I know, no, I know, it's a, it's a big no, question. Uh, yeah, yeah, so any experienced qualitative researchers can tell you that that is, let's say, an educated guess for every project because it's also about how clear is the group you're investigating. Sometimes you're not Mm. really sure, so you need to cast that net a bit wider and you say, let's go for a bigger group. Sometimes it's pretty clear what kind of people you need to investigate. And then you go Mm. for a lower uh, number. Yeah, I don't know. It's how long is a piece of string? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What we do know is that there's no point in going on and on and on. So sometimes clients ask for a larger sample size than we think would be necessary. And we really tell them you're wasting your time, you're wasting your money because there's a certain saturation point you uh, arrive at doing this research. So as a researcher, you start with a group that together with reasonable doubt, you establish, let's just talk with these 10, 15, 20 people and we'll see. And then once you've the eighth or the nine, you think, "Mm, I'm hearing the same things. I can go on, but my saturation point is there. And sometimes you find that mm, maybe not. Maybe we're missing something here. And that doesn't happen mm. often. But if that's necessary, you need to be uh, honest and say to yourself and your colleagues and your clients, 
that we need to go on because there's the saturation point, the, the patterns aren't consolidating. Yeah, they're not repeating. Yeah. So I would say just start with a sample you can you can bite off and chew <laughs> and don't overdo yeah. it. And then ask yourself the question, do we feel that we found enough resonance for our findings that we can safely say if we do another 10 interviews, we will probably find most of these insights. Um, yeah, the same again. games again. Yeah. So it's it's going until you hit that point, really. That's that's what Yeah, I it's think. not about the number. It's about that confidence of have we found what we were looking yeah. for. Yeah, to quote Bono. And it's Still, it's also yeah. you're looking for opportunities. So even if we've been doing a research of maybe 10 or 15 uh, participants, the let's say in the end, the findings that really spark the next concept development usually don't come from everyone. So you're fishing, and there might be mm. maybe two or three participants who really strongly display a certain need or a behavior that we think, oh, that's something we could build on. And then we see it in a weaker resonance with other people. Mm -hmm. And that can already be the spark for a fantastic innovation project. And then you can do all your validation later. At least that's the, the area where we work in as design researchers. Yeah. And maybe the, I don't know if I gave you that example before, but the fishing and hunting no, example I don't think so. now? I've, oh. I, I've heard of one like this, but I don't want to hear, I want to hear yeah. your version. We sometimes have that conversation in the early stage of projects with uh, client teams that when they start briefing us and they're like, oh, for the screener, we need two of these people and one of those and two of these people and three of those people. <laughs> That's a hunting exercise. You think you already know, and you want to know exactly from this person, I'm going to ask you that and get you that question. But we find that the type of work we do is more like a fishing exercise. There is, we, we know there's fish in the sea, and we know there's very interesting opportunities mm -hmm. we can get out and we can build on for the concept development. But we don't know exactly how many or how, how many different types or how big they are. But we know there's some fish there. So... The exercise is to be there at the right time, to have the right equipment. All the conditions need to be there. You fish, you're patient, and you'll find something. Mm. Hunting is different. You know that you want, I don't know, I'm not, <laughs> I shouldn't make that uh, exercise <laughs> vegetarian. I, I don't as do a hunting. I've never, I've never hunted in my life. <laughs> but Rake, um, sounds like you have. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're just going to sit there and wait until you see the rabbit that you know is there or the deer or whatever. That's a different type of research. No animals um, were um, hurt <laughs> in this design research project. Yes. <laughs> Bad example. But the mental model is different. Yeah. And that yeah, is the... Absolutely. You... That, again, illustrates that balance between structure and openness. You need to prepare and you need mm -hmm. to have the experience to know what, how to set the right conditions. And then you'll catch something. Um, but it's a different mental model than the hunting mental model. Mm -hmm. So what typically, you know, standby in my world, leading mm -hmm. the way in many of the areas of design research, what kind of tools do standby use to, uh, to aid their sense making? Oh, there are several. It's a lot of uh, sort of mapping. I think if people are interested, what's always a fantastic resource is a toolkit we made and it's freely available for everyone with Nesta and Rockefeller, DIY Toolkit, DIYToolkit.org. And there's quite some tools 
in there. So there's a causes diagram, which is also always fantastic to use. It's just setting yourself the task to think, what are the symptoms we have observed? But actually, you're looking for the causes. And that's a question you have to ask yourself as a researcher during your analysis. So I'm observing something, but is that really why it's happening? You're always looking to the, the why, right? And of course, the famous five whys exercise. Yeah. It's a painful one, <laughs> but yeah. it's very true. And that is why we always say in standby, you never do these analysis sessions alone. You always have your at least one buddy or a couple who are in the same project and who have all been involved in the fieldwork. So they've soaked up the data and the, the observations and the, the anecdotes that people gave them. But when you're interpreting it in your sense making, you're trying to dive underneath. So you're not looking at what are people doing. That is your symptom. Mm -hmm. But you're looking yeah. at why. So what drives them in a positive way, as in aspirations, or what drives them in a negative way, as in frustrations or barriers that are there. And I must say the, the causes diagram really helps with that. So you, you would do it anyway as a researcher, but that helps you to make it explicit. Conscious diagram is what you said. A causes diagram, yeah. Well, that's again just a... Causes, as in C-A-U-S-E-S, -E courses, the course. Or courses. Course, course, as in... Or causes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I, was, I was like, the conscious the course. diagram? What oh, the course? Yeah, causes diagram, yeah. okay. Course fair. Diagram. It's like, yeah. I've never heard of the conscious diagram. I'm like Googling it <laughs> at the same time. Nothing's sorry, coming up, yeah. and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. It's, it, it's funny, like, you know, that, yeah, so yeah, you don't I've seen, I, li literally use the tool, but it's good to be aware of it. It's an, an activity you need to do in any analysis. Why is this happening? Yeah. So that's a good one. And, and definitely, I think many people in our field are using something like a, a journey map in the field work. Mm. But we always say the journey map is, let's say, the S is situation. So of you're course, looking at yeah. what's happening now. And what you're basically doing is mapping the symptoms. What are yeah. the behaviors and why are, why are people saying they're doing it? But in your analysis stage, you're taking those same journey maps and you're not looking at individual ones, which you're stacking them up and looking mm. almost like transparent layers through. And you're looking at what are recurring patterns or recurring highs and lows. And then you do that same exercise. What's causing this? Yeah. Because then you've, you find either the pain points where you say, well, that's a, a good starting point for ideation, but you can also find an aspiration, something that's not met, an unmet need. And you're thinking, whoa, they have a workaround for something. Why doesn't this client organization provide a service for this? Why doesn't it exist? So that leads to opportunities where you say, oh, there's an opportunity here. And that leads you to the next tool, which is, again, the journey map, but it's a journey map to be. How could it be yeah. different? So that's where you're almost sliding from sense-making into ideation. Yeah. So again, that is thinking it through. We're using this tool of a journey map in an early stage in order to do a structured documentation, in order to do our sense-making, in order to kickstart the ideation. Yeah. The journey map to be is is a wonderful, fluid way into ideation, I find. It's, it's, yeah. it's very accessible as well for stakeholders who may not appreciate a large wall of post-its and the amount of work that goes into kind of sense making that. But a journey map to be is like 
they they feel like oh it's it's an opportunity for them to to have their voice yeah you know, that's heard, often where the penny drops yeah where things really come yeah. together yeah and then yeah, we're often migrating on the, on the data yeah and then again in a later stage in the project we often migrate to journey map to be into a service blueprint because then suddenly you have these mm. layers underneath what does your organization need to do to Im- improve this journey to be for a customer front office back office what what kind of uh, instruments do you need for that so that's a really Lots nice yeah 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 or you could do the quadrant models of stuff where the opportunities lie and like i know mark we actually had a class yesterday and he had a wonderful piece in there where he was saying some of those pieces in in the quadrant model of you know opportunities there's dependencies on them and you know mm-hmm. you might have stuff that's really hard yeah. to, to implement but if you tackle that one first all the other pieces that are dependent on yeah. them might become more um, available and easier to execute on yeah so there's that's lo- lots of things lot. yeah mm-hmm. because from mm-hmm. your sense making you're often identifying several opportunities but they're not equal some are easy yeah. to do some are difficult some are let's say very urgent and some are let's say need to do's or nice to do's so you need to filter those out. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's very, it's very easy for people to say, oh, well, the low-hanging fruit, we'll, we'll just tackle the low-hanging fruit. Mm. But really, you may be tackling low-hanging fruit for the rest of your life if that's the approach. Sometimes you have to take exactly. the big yeah. bite and you know, do, do the hard work and take the big chunks first, and then the rest of the low-hanging fruit just kind of dissipates. Yeah. And you should do all of it. It's not either or. Yeah, uh, And that's interesting with my collaboration with uh, Wietse van der A for the innovation management. He often points it out that we shouldn't discard it as well. Low-hanging fruit can be super important for a business. So it's also not, oh, let's do the radical thing, incremental, yeah. super important as well, and can be yeah. very innovative. So it's not yeah. either or, but it's, you need to do all those. So in the quadrants, one is not interesting, of course, the, the one where yeah. it's uh, simple and not urgent, but all the other ones are very important. You need yeah. to do all of them. So for strategic innovation management, that mapping is very important and you need to follow up on all of them. But the, the follow-up is different. Yeah. Now, Rake, I know you've got a deep dive into design research. What we've spoken today has been probably very interesting, but tell us about what's going to be in that course in a deep dive into design research and what, what might and who might find value in, in that course. Yeah. Well. What we ideally would like to offer to people is you, in one way, you're familiar with the basics of design research, but you know, entering, even if you have a little bit experience of a lot of experience, you know that every project you'll start doing design research, there's questions of customizing. And uh, the real craft is in customizing, making your decisions on fieldwork tools, sense-making tools. And that's the conversation we want to address. So it is about a fine balance between structure and openness. How do you find that in the different stages of the project? Yeah. And how do you make those fine-grained trade-offs yeah. in choosing your, your tools and uh, setting up your process? I'm definitely going to be sitting in on that session, actually. Uh, there's, you know, You're there's lots. No, there's, there's so many things. And I think that's what I always gravitated towards design research because no one in the design research field feels like they've got it down pat. There's no one who, who's kind of like, yeah, I've got it. This is, this I'll is done. To say yes. Yeah. I don't have that. <laughs> There's a huge sense of humility in the research world where they're like, we just don't know. And we're always learning. 
So mm. this course is, is a really good opportunity to, to unpack some of those things and have those great conversations and, and increase the learnings yeah. on. But also to oh, be I'm, confident I'm there. that we do know a lot. We do know a lot yeah. about structuring and we do know yeah. a lot about the rigor, but that doesn't mean we're rigid, that it always needs to be done in that mm. way. If your foundation is strong enough, then you're in an excellent position to be flexible and to customize it and to be agile yeah. in the process. But yeah. only being in that agile, flexible bit makes a very shaky foundation. So it's really about that balance. between. But you need both. Yeah. And I'm giving the, the course between... together with Babita, Babita George from Quicksand. And also she's done so many projects. <laughs> so it, yeah. there's so many examples of making that fine-grained consideration between yeah. structure and flexibility. Craig, we're coming towards the end of the episode. It's as always, every time I speak to you, I walk away with a smile on my face and I've always learned something new. But if people want to follow you on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? I think Hello Geke. That's the, hand, <laughs> the handle I use everywhere. Twitter and LinkedIn. Our LinkedIn is Geke van Dijk. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. At, at This Is Doing, I got to know everyone's handles. So I know it's Hello Rake and Bassus is Hello Bass. <laughs> it's, it's good. Craig, have a great time over in London and we'll chat yeah, with you soon. Nice conversation. Thank you very much. So there you have it. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. Now, if you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care.